Hello and welcome to another Medicine 360 podcast, which celebrates where the practice of medicine meets the arts. It's hosted today in Bristol by me, Ishminder Manga. I'm one of a team of people with an interest in medical humanities. I'm a junior doctor in Bristol and I'm constantly struck by the insight that medical humanities provides into human conditions and illness and suffering and our perceptions of both ourselves and others. In today's podcast, we'll be discussing death and dying, and to help us learn more about this today, I'd like to welcome our fantastic panel of guest speakers, Professor Javi Carell, Dr. Sam Gugliani, and Louise Winter. Javi Carell is a Professor of Philosophy at the University of Bristol. She studies the experience of illness using phenomenology, a philosophical approach that examines how we encounter the world and other people. Javi teaches philosophy, including a unit on death, disease, and dying, at the University of Bristol. She has published several philosophy books, including Illness, Phenomenology of Illness, and Life and Death in Freud and Heidegger. She's also a Wellcome Trust-funded senior investigator running the Life of Breath project. Sam Gugliani is a consultant oncologist in Cheltenham, specialising in the management of lung and brain tumours. He chairs the Gloucestershire Hospitals Trust Law and Ethics Group. He's the director of Medicine Unboxed, which he founded in 2009, and he uses the arts and creative industries to illuminate challenges in medicine. He's also a published poet, he writes for The Lancet, and he published his debut novel, Histories, back in 2017. And lastly, we have Louise Winter, who's a progressive funeral director and the founder of Poetic Endings, which is a funeral service in London. She creates bespoke funerals. She's also the co-director of Life, Death, Whatever, which is an initiative that is looking to redesign the dialogue around death and dying and to open up the subject and reduce the stigma around it. She is co-author of the book, We All Know How This Ends, which is a collection of stories and reflections about life, death, love and loss. The novel's been described as a roadmap for both life and death. Welcome everyone to Medicine 360. I'm going to start by asking you all, what do you think it is that makes people afraid of death? Go for it, Javi. Okay. (laughs) I think for uh, the philosopher Epicurus, who um, lived and um, philosophized uh, over over 2,000 years ago, it was a misunderstanding, really. So he thought we were afraid of death only because we didn't understand what it would be what death is or what, what it would be like to be dead. And his uh, some of his philosophical efforts were directed at this fear, which he considered to be irrational. So he thought that our fear of death is irrational and that what we actually need to do is understand that the state of being dead is a state of nothingness or an experiential blank. There's nothing it is like to be dead. And once we master uh, a rational understanding of that insight, we would cease fearing death. And um, his larger project is a philosophical therapy, if you like, trying to rid us of irrational fear so we can enjoy the life we have much, uh, much better. So that's one angle on the question. Louise, what are your thoughts? So um, I guess from my perspective, as a funeral director who sees people who are grieving every day, I think a huge reason why people are afraid of death and afraid to talk about it is because death equates to loss and grief. And imagining that the person and that you've chosen to spend your life with, for example, or your children or your parents or your pet or whoever it is, are at some point going to die is terrifying. It also has a very practical effect um, 
on our lives, all the things that we know we value that, you know, we might have built a beautiful life with someone and then that can be over. Um, And we're faced with living life without people. And I think that's why there are many reasons why, but that's part of the reason why people are really terrified of death and don't want to talk about it. And I agree with, 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 but it seems to me that it is completely understandable. It ought to be completely understandable as a human being that a human being is frightened of death. It doesn't always mean that that fear's good for us, but it feels completely understandable to me. And I agree, it's a fear, fear of loss. I, I guess there's other bits to that, though, aren't there? It's, it's sometimes it can spin on to being more than that. Um, and certainly there's a capacity, definitely in some parts of the world, more than others, for almost that fear of loss becoming an entitlement or expectation of life and um, certainty and continuance, which isn't always deliverable. Um, And that expectation, I think, can make um, living and dying difficult. Sam, when you talk about that expectation and that sense of entitlement, it sounds like you're referring to the idea that people are expecting healthcare professionals to be able to deliver impossible tasks sometimes. And I know that's something that I can I can definitely relate to that, especially at the start of my career as a junior doctor. I felt sometimes when patients started a sense of failure and actually it's just because we kind of go into medicine thinking that we're going to be saving people's lives. And I don't think that medical school and the training necessarily equips you to deal with what happens when that doesn't go to plan. And, you know, obviously some patients will die and that's a normal and natural part of life and it's not due to any inadequacy on the part of the medical team. How do you think that we can better prepare people then for that possibility? I think it's difficult. If we look at medicine now compared to 100 years ago or even 200 years ago, the advances are astonishing and tremendous and they are to the betterment of huge swathes of humanity in terms of relieving suffering and prolonging life. Those two things strike me as good things. And certainly sometimes if patients die, or let's say persons die, then it's possible that the medical profession is culpable and haven't, um, as we know, you know, every day on the news, necessarily done what they ought to have done. The challenge, as I see it anyway, from from my small um, viewpoint, is that that then generates an expectation on both sides of the medical encounter that um, all ills may be remedied and life uh, indefinitely prolonged. Now, it strikes me that isn't now, and I don't think it ever will be necessarily in our reach but further to that the um the drive somehow to achieve it the mastery and the hubris that comes with that can can actually result in suffering and bad deaths and untruths um which don't help the individual or society necessarily and it you know medicine to me oughtn't to be understood as something that is there primarily to prolong life but also to engender flourishing well-being health um to be able to sit comfortably with loss and sadness and grief um you know much wider than simply the prolongation of life and in the modern world you know it's not just the individual person's lives but how we meet societies well and wider life what's our responsibility to planetary health and you know justice you know much wider concerns I think. I think it's interesting what you said about how that term medicine the definition of it kind of needs to change to encompass things like palliative care and end-of-life care. 
How do you all think that we can reduce the stigma around the topic of death and dying and make people feel more comfortable about it? I, I don't know if it's stigma exactly. I mean, I was, I was just thinking as Sam was speaking about the kind of the richness of the medical endeavor. And I was thinking about um, what Louise said about about loss. And I was thinking there's actually two very distinctive things um, that are on the table. The first is how we deal with losing loved ones. Um, And what Louise was saying around about loss. And that that is a tremendous piece, but in a way, one that is more understandable to us because we know what it's like to lose something precious, even if we've not experienced the, the loss of a close loved one. That is something that is within our horizon of experience, if you like. Whereas the thing that I always found intellectually and emotionally the more challenging is that is one's own death and what a what Epicurus one of the many things that he very wisely counseled us to do is to make that distinctive separation and say the things we can experience such as the loss of loved of loved ones those are experiences those are things that I can I can go through I can experience so they can harm me as he put it other things, uh, sorry, my own death is not something I can experience. I can experience dying and falling ill and, you know, even my, my last final days, but I don't experience being dead. So it's, if you like, metaphysically a very, very different uh, problem or question or issue. And the thing that I think is the most terrifying about it is that we lose ourselves rather than experience loss within our horizon of existence and to most people that is or if not to all people that is something that is impossible to conceptualize and very very difficult to think about our own extinction as opposed to the very difficult but maybe more familiar loss of somebody else did you have any kind of opinions on that Louise as well especially from your line of work yeah um I was just thinking actually whether I'm more afraid of living life without the people I love around me or I'm more afraid of um of being dead and I'm I'm not sure where I am um on that actually I think I'm more scared of living life without the people I love around me um and just to go back to to your original question of why um, or, or how we can help people to understand, I think, and confront their mortality. And a lot of that is just to do with exposure to it and not shying away from it. So part of the work that I do is life, death, whatever, with my colleague, Anna. Um, she works at end of life, and I work after people have died. Uh, and we came together because um, we realised that lots of people just don't have experience they haven't experienced the death of somebody they haven't been to a funeral they don't understand what big words like palliative mean and ho- and they hear the word hospice and they panic and they some they think it's the the end and it's not necessarily um and part of the work that we do is um sort of to bust some of these myths and help people to understand what's actually going on in a non-medical, really relatable way. And one of the ways we do that is on Instagram, where we share a project called Five Things, which is where lots of different people write about their experiences in the form of five very simple paragraphs, which get shared as slides on Instagram. And we've had everyone from people like Dr. Catherine Mannix, 
um, explaining what happens when someone is dying and what to expect at the end to people like um, my best friend whose father died in really awful, horrible, sudden traumatic circumstances. And he did not have a good death at all. And actually the hospital were at fault for a lot of it. Um, and she writes really graphically about what happened to him and how it felt as a family and her role in that. So, um, and what we find is that the community that are engaged in this really benefit from listening to other people's experiences and knowing what to expect and sharing their own experiences and being heard and finding support from people who are going through through something similar. And I think that's part of the process of opening up the conversation and making these difficult conversations more part of, of everyday life. That project sounds really pivotal in helping to shift some people's perceptions and definitely helping them to feel less afraid um, and especially helping them to understand what dying actually involves. So projects like that definitely, I think, would help some people to prepare for death and dying. Do you think that there are any other ways that we could help people to do that? I just wonder whether, you know, this is all of us, you know, I, I don't think there are people who are frightened and those who aren't all of this feels really human to me and it's very and i hope i speak on behalf of all of us where we feel we can um, assert this from a place of some um concreteness in our life but that that is that's very fragile and um it's very difficult to know what we'll feel like when we're in a position of more of greater vulnerability so i think i think we can rationalize this but that we have to acknowledge that fear is real or that apprehension around um, our own vulnerability. But to me, it's almost a discourse that acknowledges that vulnerability at all levels and the fact that we are, you know, contingent and here today and gone tomorrow. And to me, that, you know, if anything gives life value and preciousness and beauty is the fact it is fleeting Um it's what makes the blossom astonishing because it won't be here in a week or, and the like the, the swifts will be gone soon and they're astonishing for that reason and these things illuminate the world but but they're brief um and i think the humanities in a way are a sort of necessary wisdom here because the constant refrain of literature and art and music is around our shared brevity and fragility um and for that reason, Ishmael, I don't think we should call them. I've never felt we should call them the medical humanities. They are they are the humanities, and medicine borrows from them and learns from them um, as much as it might learn from a textbook of anatomy or physiology. And it's 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 similarly important wisdom, not least the language with it, with which we're charged to navigate these difficult conversations with um, our for patients and persons we're charged to care for. Yeah, I. I mean, I, I agree with, with every word, word Sam, um, echoing, you know, Freud's thoughts on, on transience, on the, on the, the, the beauty that is uh, not diminished but just because it is, it is ephemeral. And I'm not sure this word stigma, um, I think we have a lot of stigma around illness and disability in our society, a lot of stigma around mental illness in particular, around aging, uh, around failing vulnerable bodies but I don't think death is stigmatized I think the problem is that there is a real mismatch between popular depictions of death which are in almost invariably I think very flat and very um, cartoonish 
and um, don't really capture the enormity of what is going on. And again, I think as a philosopher, the thing that always baffled me is the the enormity of that moment of transition where a living human being disappears and a corpse replaces that person. And, and that's exactly, I think, the void that Louise was talking about that is so frightening to people. And of course, when we think about this happening to ourselves, us stopping to sense and stopping to be there for other people and stopping to experience. Um, and I'm not sure it's a taboo. I think it's more that there's a very trivializing, shallow, kind of popular view of death. As You know, you see it in all the soap operas and terrible stuff that's on, on TV where people just close their eyes. And it's 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 not like that, right? I mean, that's the thing that death is not some clean transition of the sort I was describing. It's it's messy and it's dirty and it's full of pain and suffering. And I think it's those things that people abhor the the ways in which your body can betray you, which as an adult, as a healthy, able-bodied adult, we we kind of almost erase. We take off the palette of what is possible. So this really links in with Sam's point about vulnerability, that we just don't like to consider our bodies as these vulnerable things and their sudden or uh, or slow decline and failure come to us as a terrible insult and a terrible aberration. Whereas in fact, it's, you know, it's the way of nature. It's a fact about human biological life. And I think that's where the the, the fear and the stigma are nested in that sense that your body can do these terrible things to you and you have no control over events or medical events as they unfold. Have you like what you were saying about it being that sense of betrayal that makes people feel so resentful of it and abhor it and it sort of make, it's, makes me think of a quote by I think a philosopher called Julia Crisper, which you talk about in your book Louise um, and she says that corpses show me what I permanently thrust aside in order to live and Louise you talk in your book about how a lot of people don't want to see the bodies of deceased um, and how for some people actually seeing those bodies can be quite healing and meaningful and it can help them to accept and acknowledge that death do you think that that is what makes people then so afraid of the corpse the fact that it's a reminder of our own mortality and of what we all eventually will become I think it's so different um, for everyone and all the different people that I speak to have very different experiences of um, wanting to see the the person who has died. Um, So some people will say to me, it's just a body, he's gone, it's not him anymore, I'm not interested, once you're gone, you're gone. Um, And they don't want to engage with that part of the funeral at all. For some people, they want to be really involved and it's really important to them that we take very tender and sensitive care of the person that's died and they want to come along and they want to um, wash and dress the person. They want to do their hair. They want to kiss them goodbye. They want to hold their hand. Um, And they see that person still as that person. Um, They are still their mum or whoever it is um, and they still care for them in the same way. Um, So... Part of my work, I think, is to unpack with people their why it is they want to come or why it is they really don't want to come. Um, often it's because people have had really bad experiences in the past. They have come to see the person who's died, who's been really horribly embalmed, um, 
had thick makeup put on their faces, wearing clothes that are alien and they'd never normally be wearing and they look very strange and um, they don't want to repeat that experience. We've also had really lovely experiences where people have had a really awful death, perhaps um, in a hospital environment um, with lots of machines beeping and lots of stress and people running around and all sorts of things. Um, And they see the opportunity to have the person dressed in their own clothes, sensitively prepared and come and see them in the funeral home and just be able to spend some time with them in a very different setting as quite a cathartic part of their own journey. So it is really different for everyone. And I don't think I've ever met two people who've had the same viewpoint on um, coming to spend time with with the person that has died. We're obviously speaking still in the midst of a global pandemic and COVID-19 has obviously led to many more deaths than we would have expected before. It's also had a massive change in the way that people have been allowed to grieve with all the different restrictions in funerals. I experienced firsthand in hospitals how some people were unfortunately unable to say goodbye to their loved ones and it was a particularly heart-rending time for a lot of people. How do you all think that the pandemic has changed people's perception of death? Two points, if I may. When the pandemic first, certainly during the first wave a year and a bit ago, there was part of me that almost wondered if it would result in a sort of, um, you know, a bit of a grand reckoning around some of the things I've described around our vulnerability and how we respond to that. That, you know, that hasn't been my experience. It feels as though those um we sort of carry on along those tracks we've 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 come through a very difficult time it doesn't feel as though the conversations have been um better articulated and so much of the um noise such as it was at the start of the pandemic was very much around ventilators and and life prolonging treatment there's very little attention to how we looked after persons who weren't well enough for consideration of ventilation or uh, adequate resourcing of palliation in the community and the like. So it it perpetuated for me a similar um, disconnect around what was possible and what might be what might look like good care. To me, the pandemic brought out a whole host of issues that fundamentally go back to the fact that we're embodied creatures. And the Um, attempts we made to connect with people whilst physically distancing and the ways in which those fell short of what we were actually after, I think really drive home the, 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 the point about grief, that grief, like maybe all aspects of human life, is, is an embodied process, is an embodied experience. And grieving away from the body, what Louise was just saying about being with or not being with, those kinds of choices, not having the choice or being in a different country or in a different city and having to say goodbye to somebody through an iPad. I think these really drive home this point that, you know, at, at the end of the day, this embodiment that maybe we've become more detached from or maybe we don't recognize uh, or didn't recognize the significance of it as much previously has now really come to the forefront of our attention and the ways in which we can and can't be with each other, be with each other in the same room or be with each other emotionally have really come under, I think, very intense pressures and the sense of lack of connection, inability to complete one's, 
you know, grieving, you know, having sort of numbers, restricted numbers in funerals, not being able to hug and kiss people who are obviously very sensitive to infection, but also, you know, these may be kind of final opportunities. So in a way, I think those may brought to very kind of sharp awareness the the, the embodied nature of, of everything that we do. So saying goodbye on a tablet remains just fundamentally terrible, I think, to people who've had to do it. And of course, to the health professionals who've had to witness it. And I think that will really sharpen some of the discussions around what it is to grieve and to grieve well and what it is to to die well. And obviously, these both really demand of us the ability to to be together in a in a in a physical and an emotional sense that they're inseparable. And Javi, you sort of spoke about this idea of dying well. Sam, you kind of referred to it a bit earlier when you said bad death. I'm quite interested in that phrase, well, good death. And it's an oxymoron in itself. Um, Louise, you talk about it a bit in your book. Is it possible to have a good death? And what do you actually think about that phrase, good death? I've definitely witnessed unnecessary suffering within the process of dying which from my vantage point has been to some extent Louise talked about a friend whose father died in hospital it is it is certainly possible that in the attempts and the um, momentum and the hubris to prolong life and reverse the reversible it's not always hubris but there are situations where that very much is evident that palliative maneuvers can be withheld and interventions that result in far more harm than benefit can be instilled. So I think I think it is certainly possible to perpetuate a bad state of dying or enable it. It's terribly subjective, though, as to what a, a good death or a good dying or a bad dying might look like. Um, I don't think that should stop us from trying to make it better, though, uh, and to trying to enable cultures and technologies that allow for as undistressed uh, as, an allevi- as much an alleviation of suffering as is um, possible and, and, and in keeping with an individual's wishes. Javi and Louise, is that something that you would agree with? Do you think a good death is something that we can aim for? Do you think it exists? I think it can exist. I think there's been a real obsession around the term a good death, which has been quite unhelpful in what people think that it means. For me, and I know for my um, my colleague Anna, um, who who is the one who wrote the book with me and very much deals with the end of life, she always talks about how we're living right up until the point of death. She tries not to use the word dying because she works with people who are still alive right up until um, they have died. And I think so much of what happens when we're dying is out of our control. I work all the time with people who have died in an out-of-order out death, whether it's a car crash or they have died by suicide or they were crossing the street and the bus ran them over. All of those situations where it would be impossible to describe that as a good death or to control anything around it. However, what we can do, I think, is try to live a good life right up until the very end, whenever that is. And I think the way that we do that is living life with an awareness of death that we might live until we're 99. I think my own definition of a good death would be if I had lived a good life and died age 99 in a lovely cottage in the countryside surrounded by flowers, grandchildren, um, and, you know, sort of went to sleep peacefully and never woke up. That would be my definition of 
of a good death. Um, and I think that death is something that very I've in my years of being a funeral director, I haven't heard of that happening. I think it happened once. There was one lady who had a death like that, but most people have had a very different experience of death. But what we can do is control our approach to death and include it as part of conversation and talk about it and not be in denial about it. I think so much of of this is just not being in denial about um, that this is going to happen one day. And how do you all feel that your work has impacted your perception of death? And do you feel that it's changed the way that you live your lives in any way? <laughs> I'm laughing because I did my PhD thesis on the concept of death in Freud and Heidegger. So I've, I, sat, I sat around with these concepts for, for a very, very long time. And, and I think what Louise was saying was really expressing the Heideggerian sentiment that appreciating your death or living with the understanding that you will die and that this event isn't some external far away event that will take place that has no relevance to your present um, but rather that this event is what structures life what makes events and the passing of time one directional irreversible and that makes us he, he called human beings being towards death so every day you live is one day takes you one day closer to your to your own death um, he's, he didn't intend it in a morbid way. He, he intended it as an, an invitation for people to reflect on that fact and to think of the preciousness of the choices they make, the things they engage in, the projects they throw themselves into. And it's this continued awareness of our, our openness, what he called our projection into the future, that makes human beings says Heidegger, unique. So in a way, a good death is a death that is already here in the sense that I am aware of it and I live as a mortal with the understanding that I have no control over when it will come or how it will come or I have little control over it. And I need to accept that this is yet another way in which we are vulnerable, afflicted, limited and of course dependent on others and in a way I think what people often talk about is the decision making being taken out of their hands other people making decisions for them them being given or not being given interventions they want or don't want and the real importance if you take say a very pragmatic area for example um, discussions about organ donations and people needing to decide if they want to opt out uh, and not be organ donors if they die in the relevant circumstances. And people really resist having that conversation because it's morbid and I'm young and I don't need to think about it now. And the same for uh, a lot of people when they're asked about sort of advanced directives. You know, what, what do you want us to do if X, Y, or Z happens to you? People hate those conversations because they bring death to a very kind of realistic practical, pragmatic level that I think is terrifying in exactly the ways Louise was describing. But when we talk about the good death, part of, I think, what we're trying to do here in this conversation and similar ones is to, is to normalize it, is to say, it's not morbid and disgusting and upsetting to talk about what you want to happen to you in your, in your end of life. It's just part of the structure of life. And that kind of um, acceptance, I think, requires a lot of courage and maturity and is, is a definite bonus, again, 
to take the Heideggerian view uh, here now in the present. It makes people live courageously, live with the with the kind of uh, understanding of their finitude. So, having Sam, you've both then touched on this idea that the brevity of life and the fragility of it makes it all the more kind of special and unique. Do you all then subscribe to the view that knowing that we die helps to give our lives more meaning? And is that something that you would agree with as well, Louise? I think it's difficult. I mean, I, you know, I think, so I, I encounter many deaths <clears throat> in a week and I'd be lying to you and to myself if I said I sort of skipped home and sunbeams kind of, you know, joyous of the moment all the time because I'm you know like all of us faulted but the, you know earlier on Louise and Harvey were talking about the response to meeting a a, a corpse or a dead body and I, I have a particular experience that happens regularly enough of some of someone who isn't a corpse but who I know will not be here in say three months or a year I know that with conviction based on their diagnosis and their trajectory of uh, an illness um and and to, a, a certain thing happens often enough which is where they are so visibly alive to me in their gestures and their movements and their um you know humor voice inflections it is really startling because it, it's a sort of it's a it's it's almost a, um a shock that this material of which they're constructed is alive, um, and that, and that it, and then it won't be, and it's a really kind of jolting reminder of this present um, moment and the kind of very strange miracle of life. Um, the poet Ju- Julia Darling writes this great line saying, um, "It's a miracle any of us stands up, behaves um, at all," um, and it, it is it is almost that and that that is actually a joyous feeling because it rapidly generalizes to, to to yourself to those around you and and in fact to all life and um i really like what harvey said about that generating that a sort of a sense of interconnectedness because it really does d- do that um very starkly in a way that's wonderful and Javi and louise do you think that death gives life its meaning. So when I first started working with death, I made some huge changes in my um, in my own life because I became aware of how fragile life can be. Um, I saw how disposable it can be as well. One minute it's there and the next minute it was just gone. Um, and so I made some big decisions. I cut out people, I moved, I started a relationship with someone who I had feelings for, I made huge changes and as time went on actually I have stopped making huge changes and sort of living on the edge because I realized that in most cases life won't end tomorrow and most of us will have it tomorrow um, and actually it's about making um, today good so that if I do have it tomorrow it will be a bearable tomorrow and actually living on the edge all the time of um, taking chances and taking risks isn't a very comfortable experience. So um, I've had two experiences of what death um, can do, make me live quite an extreme life and also make me live a, a much safer life. Someone from the life-death community, actually, her name is Kimberly. She was a palliative care nurse in London. And she used to talk about what she called morbid gratitude. Um, and every day she would run up the stairs and be so grateful that she was alive and that she had the ability to be able to run up the stairs and to get her coat and to go about her day. And 
that was how she chose to live. And, and actually, she died very suddenly um, and unexpectedly um, last year. And she wrote a wonderful five things about what she had um, learned from taking care of um, people who were dying. And part of it was that, to have morbid gratitude um, for the fact that we are alive today. We can't control tomorrow, but for today, we're here and still breathing. So it seems, Louise, from what you're saying, it's that really tricky and delicate balance between living life to the full and living sensibly yeah I think so yeah. <laughs> Javi what do you make of all of that would you kind of agree oh I think questions of meaning are uh, are very fretful questions in in philosophy I, I mean you can you can kind of see it both ways you can say yes death is the source of value because if everything was infinite if time was infinite and our life was if we were immortal Nothing would be urgent. We wouldn't have to do anything particularly today. Things would become entirely meaningless. No achievement would be important. And we would sink into what Bernard Williams called the tedium of immortality. Um, so you might say, okay, so if I look for, for meaning, I find it in death because death is what puts value on stuff because it makes everything finite and, and even scarce, right? So a flower that only blooms one night is all the more precious because of its singular appearance. The problem is, I don't think either of these is enough to um, to generate subjective meaning. And I think what happens is, even though life is incredibly short, and I think the older you get, the shorter it seems, <laughs> there are still we still manage to make a right mess of it while we're <laughs> while we're young and while we're still alive. And there are, there are so many sources of human misery and human suffering and I am now the mother of a, of a teenager and uh, watching a 14 year old go through the those years brings back a lot of memories of really that sense of chaos and unsettledness and questioning questioning you know so it's not really clear to me that death either gives or doesn't give life meaning i think that quest is much more personal maybe than i than i previously thought i don't think you can open a philosophy text and say oh you know plato gives us uh, a, a good account heidegger gives us a good account <clears throat> i think ultimately the forging of meaning is done in people's actions and people's choices as louise beautifully demonstrated it's when you choose to move away it's when you choose to start or end a relationship that enacts the kind of meaning that you are at the current time upholding or uh, experiencing yourself. But I think it's it's very, very tricky to try and generalize uh, a lot beyond that. I agree with that notion that it does seem to be a very individual journey and that quest to see if we can generate meaning through life is something that is impossible to describe and difficult to get any kind of general consensus on. I think we will sadly have to end on this note, although I could definitely ask you all many more questions. Thank you all so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks, Shminda. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you for listening to another Medicine 360 podcast. Please do check out Louise's fantastic new novel, We All Know How This Ends. We are even offering an exclusive 25% off if you buy through bloomsbury.com and enter the code LIFE25 at checkout. And if you'd like to learn more about medicine and humanities, please visit medicine360.co.uk. From our team here, we wish you all the very best until next time.